Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly podcast of news, culture, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most historically accurate city between Coyota and Lincoln Hills. I'm Joel Warner. Joining me today at the Five Points Media Center is uh, Jared King Mayer, and as usual, our man behind the glass, uh, Julian Mondragon. We have a very special guest today, Colorado's very own state historian, Bill Convery. Hey, Bill. Good morning. He's going to talk to us about the brand new uh, History Colorado Center, as well as all things old and mysterious about our fair state. Uh, but first, we have some news to discuss. Uh, last week, we predicted that the camping ban in Denver was going to go down in flames. It turns out we were completely correct, but that reality in this case was wrong, in that it uh, looks like the ban is going to completely pass. Uh, Jared, I think you had the, uh, the scoop on this. Yeah, and, and, and it, it's a really interesting story about the Denver camping ban, uh, pretty much because it just surprised me how, how little you guys actually knew about what was going on uh, as far as that news. You said last week that um, you, I think Ron noted or someone noted that the, the bill going before the city council, the vote on it had been delayed, and then that led all of you to uh, pontificate that this was an indication that the entire proposed law against uh, – homeless camping in Denver was going to go down in flames. Quite to the contrary, they had a uh, multiple-hour special session last or this Tuesday, which is the reason why they delayed the vote so they could have this big special session. It passed. Uh, that You got a preliminary vote passed the city council, I think something like 9 to 4, and a final vote is coming up uh, on the 11th or the 14th. I'm, I'm not sure which one, but – uh, as far as I can tell, are I you mean, trying this, to say that we were wrong on this count, Jared? I'm, I'm saying you guys were absolutely. Are you sure about that? You were absolutely the opposite of right. The opposite of right. Yeah. You know, now it's not our fault if not everyone else in the city listened to our podcast and didn't follow through with our prediction. Okay? Yeah, that, that's true. You know, I blame everyone else. I blame reality, not not what happens here at the diatribe. Yeah, but uh, in actuality, just just looking at the the lay of the land here, I mean, it it is a one of these bills that. Uh, has the support of the downtown business community, which kind of runs things as far as uh, political contributions and their sway. So they want it. Uh, Mayor Hancock has thrown uh, his full support behind it and has defended it. And it looks like they have enough votes to pass it. Uh, so um, I'd be I'd be very surprised. I'm not making any predictions. You aren't. I'm not making any predictions. <laughs> I'm not saying that it will pass away, though, but I'd be very surprised if it didn't. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. Once again, the camping ban is not going to pass. You heard it here, <laughs> yes. the diatribe. Um, now, talking about uh, factual mistakes, the problem is pretty soon there will be no one left to correct our, our factual mistakes in that copy editors are going the way of the dodo. Uh, it turns out that along with um, flashing some of its most high-profile names, uh, the, uh, the Denver Post is going to be laying off, what is it, like two-thirds of its copy editors? Yeah, it was like a, a no-holds-barred uh, just slashing of an, the entire copy editing department. Yes. It seems. I mean, there might be a few left, but I was really surprised. Yeah, I mean, two-thirds is a huge chunk of any copy editor department. I think if, if people don't know what copy editors are, I mean, these people are the ones who are the ones working in the trenches to make sure that, one, not only do stories read well, but actually have, like, every single fact 
is completely correct. And some of my best experiences as a writer is working with a really good copy editor to that. They will hold your butt to the fire and make sure the stuff is correct. And at least in my book, this is one more sign of the problems with the way a journalism is, uh, journalism is going. I mean, I spent years at Westward. I know, Jared, you spent years at Westward. And we were there for the big push onto onto the web, you know, blogging. First, it was twice a week, then three times a week. And then we were blogging, like, literally once every day. And it was, we had all these meetings about how to craft headlines to get the most SEO, you know, how many lines to make the first paragraph so it fits on that first page of the of the blog. And this was all useful stuff. Not once did they ever talk about like how to actually create quality writing in the blogs. And this to me is another sign of that where it almost doesn't matter about the quali- quality of the writing going out anymore. It's just about kind of getting, getting as much content out there and devil may care whether it's correct or even. Well, I'd like to hear your take on this bill because as a state historian, uh, (laughs) Historians often rely upon that well relied upon the Rocky Mountain News and you know used to rely on the Denver Post. I'm sure as the papers of record, yeah. you go into the yeah. library and you can find the old Rocky Mountain Newses from 50, 80 years ago. What do you think about less copywriters? Yeah, well, you know the old quote that uh, newspapers are the first rough draft of history, and historians rely on them so much. But you know we're really challenged now to find. I, I think I think there's more. We're more literate than we have been in 100 years because of blogs and because of uh, email. Uh, but that's such ephemeral material that it's it's harder and harder to collect that and capture it. And I think in, historians in 100 years are going to have a really hard time trying to figure out what we were up to. Yeah, do you think there's going to be questions about the, factu- about the factual accuracy of this stuff? Oh, no doubt. But, of course, if you look at a newspaper 100 years ago, it was all editorial. So it, it's uh, – it's a trade-off of, of factual accuracy in this case. Yeah, and I think we should remember that. I think uh, my uh, history thesis in college was actually about uh, the newspaper reporting on the Battle of Gettysburg, and I went back to the original uh, sources, and it's fascinating to look at just how many horrible mistakes there were. I mean, yeah. for literally weeks afterwards, all of a sudden papers were declaring this massive Confederate victory at Gettysburg. Right. Right. So in some right. ways to say that we're really – yeah, maybe we're just coming around again. Yeah, it's fine. You know, we yeah. want that. That's good. I will say one thing about this though is whoever the copyator that was assigned to Woody Page uh, must have been about ready to commit suicide anyway. <laughs> so this this might have been this a reprieve for that copywriter. <laughs> so at least there was some, uh, you know, some some honor and some kindness in in not having to edit Woody Page anymore. Yes, yes. Um, another thing that possibly. Um, could be coming to an end, not anytime soon, but discussion of the I-70 uh, viaduct. I think there's discussion of putting it below ground, which to me is a fascinating story. And just the, fast, and the story of how these, how these viaducts have separated communities, I always think is a really, really cool story. I think in general, Denver has, uh, has always been lucky with having less of these viaducts kind of, kind of balkanizing the community. As they, have, they have in many U.S. cities, but I but like our big structure has always been the, the I-70 viaduct. Yeah, so can I give a little bit of context yeah. here? The I-70 viaduct is when you're driving on I-70, and it's the area between Brighton Boulevard and Colorado where it's the raised section. A lot of people would know it because every time you drive past a Purina dog food plant, it starts to smell really nasty. <laughs> uh but welcome to Denver from the airport. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those, smell it's one like, of those like olfactory <laughs> indicators. Okay, now I'm driving through uh through North Denver right there. But uh the fact of the matter is is that that those neighborhoods up there 
were there obviously before this highway came through. And when they built this highway, it, it severed uh, the neighborhoods, what Elyria, Swansea, and Globeville cut them off from the rest of Denver. And I've always found Globeville to be a pretty interesting place because you go there and there's this community of uh, people that live there, but you feel like you're in a bubble. It's really funny because there's I-70 on one side, there's a Platte River on the other side, um, I-25 on one side, and um, you are you are you know geographically boxed in. And they've been trying for years and years and years to figure out what to do about this viaduct. It's crumbling. It's falling apart. Uh, for a long time, they were thinking about trying to make it go north. Am I correct? Like yeah, maybe that's up right. along the yep. Platte River. Yeah. And that kind of fell through. Um, and then this idea, let's just drop it. It's not a tunnel necessarily, but it would kind of be like what they did with T-Rex, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's dro- dropped below ground and then some section of it would, you know, kind of be like a covered area where people could walk yeah. over. But it's like what a um, what an intriguing idea and yeah. why didn't they think of – why didn't they come up with this plan earlier? I mean my assumption is – I mean, Bill, do you have idea thoughts on that? I think it's because it's really expensive. Well, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And, you know, the uh, original highway grids were really kind of – brutal architecture in a lot of ways. There was a plan to run a viaduct right through the center of downtown Denver, which would have essentially done the same thing, separated downtown. Uh, that was a bridge too far for them, I guess. <laughs> it is amazing these kind of these kind of urban planning concepts uh, that are kind of come and gone. You know, like, viaducts are a great idea. Or let's yeah. say, or like, I know that for a while there was discussion of literally making the the, the second floor of downtown, like the main, the main kind of pedestrian walkway, yeah, so they, they would have bridges. And it's just skyways, like, yeah. I don't understand how anyone would ever think these were these would be good ideas for communities. Well, what do, what do you think, Bill? I mean, this this was a trend. What and what were we talking like in the fifties? Yeah, fifties and sixties, and you know, of course, what's really going on is uh, people are fleeing from downtown cores. They're they're starting to think of the downtown as a blighted area, and people are moving out into the suburbs. So you need some way to get from the you know the periphery back into the center because that's where everybody works. But since nobody values the center, it was easy enough to go ahead and cut through it, slice through it with these uh, these kinds of overpasses. Um, but we're changing. We think the downtowns are vital again in a lot of ways, and it really makes a difference now that we want pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods that that, are, that feel like a community all. So I think we're going the other way. And so, what's your take on this this uh, C dot concept to drop the um, the highway below the ground? Um, if if it if the state can actually find money to build this thing is the next question. But as a concept, what do you think? Right, that's always the issue is how to finance this. But uh, you know, I think it's going to work in in sort of a less. It, it'll be a more neighborhood friendly concept at the end of it, and I, I favor that sort of you know hiding the highways and making the people in the streets more important again. Just as long as they don't mess with the Purina dog food. Right on. Yeah, we need, we still need there, that. Yeah. And yeah, even in the tunnel, even if they need to pipe in the, the, the yeah. odor of the, yeah, of the rendering down yeah. into the tunnel as we go through We it. should work on some kind of historic designation for the <laughs> exactly. smell. For the smell. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Now, there would be one other downside, though, of getting rid of the viaduct. It would eliminate the one and only area that filmmakers use in Denver <laughs> to create a somewhat like like urban environment. I yeah. mean like like how many like music videos, how many yeah. like or zombie films, apocalypse yeah, films, like, yeah. have been filmed below the viaduct because they literally you know, like there's no world in Denver that even feels like this kind of gritty urban core. And that's it. We still have we still have the Gates rubber factory which is standing yes. despite everything. So So um, you can do there right. and get some tetanus. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. But other than that, we, we are losing. We yeah. Have. yeah. I mean, that's one thing well, we've lost. Is. Well, think of taking out the viaducts out of downtown Denver, you know, over yeah. the Platte River. That really changed the character of lower downtown in a lot of ways for better and, I guess you could argue, for worse as well. Yeah. And, Bill, isn't it a situation where if you look at some of the buildings that are right in lower downtown, oh, like yeah. I think it's the uh, – like the tattered yeah. cover building, there's, Mercantile, a, yeah. there's a door, right? Yeah. If you look oh, way up to the second yeah. floor, door to it's hanging nowhere. in the sky. I know, and that's because the viaduct went right past it. That was the main entrance because the viaduct, you know, sort of leapt up out of lower downtown to cross the South Platte River. So they built, you know, really ornate entrances on the second floor that are now sort of hanging in the sky once the viaducts were taken down. Wow. Yeah. Well, door to nowhere. Very cool. Well, we're definitely starting to get into historical territory, so I want to move on to our main topics. Beforehand, though, I want to give a little shout-out to our main sponsor. This week's episode, as always, is brought to you by Free Speech TV. On television, the internet, and radio, Free Speech TV inspires viewers to become civically engaged. For more information, visit freespeech.org. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, Bill, we wanted to have you here uh, this week, uh, mostly to celebrate the opening of the new uh, History Colorado Center. Um which which opened for real last Saturday. Yeah. Is that correct? It opened to the public on the 28th over on 12th and Broadway. It's a brand new state-of-the-art uh, uh, celebration of Colorado, I guess. Um, uh, the Colorado Historical Society had a museum on 13th and Broadway, but we had to move to make way for an expanded state justice center. And so we had the opportunity to build a brand new building with new exhibits for new audiences, new approaches. It's really great. And so the old building, a lot of people might remember it if, if you actually went to it, was in that kind of slanted yeah. – uh, It was the building was literally slanted at probably like a 30-degree angle, but it kind of went up. And, but the historical society was in the basement right. of that. And so were there – were there problems with that building? What didn't, oh. wouldn't the, wouldn't the roof <laughs> Where to start? Something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a. It looked like a big brown doorstop. We we can start there, and it was built with that same ethic that gave us viaducts all over the mm-hmm. place. It was a very brutalist modern architecture, which is nice in its way, but the but the design was compromised because it flipped with the state justice center. It really wasn't what it was intended to be. Was, it, yeah. supposed to, was it supposed to be like one of those like uh, Dukes of like Dukes of Hazard jumps? You're supposed to like yeah, you jump right. onto the viaduct. You, for, well, the... You, you could ramp straight up and land on top of the state supreme court building. That Perfect. Was, I well, think, I remember I think that was the uh, it was a skateboarder's <laughs> paradise. Oh yeah, no, though. no. I was yeah. just going to say that. When I was a teenager, yeah. you would go right. down there, and it was um, it was a spot to go because the bank, you know, that when you got to the bottom, it was kind of banked up at an angle, and so it was like it was built with skateboarders yeah. in mind. And so you'd go down there on like a Sunday evening when the downtown in the '90s would be pretty much abandoned, and it would be you'd see probably. Uh, probably close to hundreds of skateboarders really? there right. sometimes. But then they yeah. started kicking you out. I heard there was a skate park up in Breckenridge where they built a little miniature version of it, sort of a, a memorial to yeah. one of the great <laughs> skate park locations in Denver. Wow. Uh, but, you know, the basement, we had our exhibits in the basement. Uh, it was all underground. Our collection storage was underground, which was not a great idea because it turns out that water flows downhill. Yeah. So anytime <laughs> there was that. a flood or, or a, 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 a water main break, you know, we were waiting around trying to save these, you know, great collections that we have. That was always a problem, too. So, and it sounds like just kind of transferring all this stuff from this old place, new place. I mean, this was this was a whole ordeal in itself. Right? It was incredible. Uh, we have over 250,000 three-dimensional objects and something like 15 million pages of books and manuscripts that we had to move twice. Everything had to be... Uh, identified and inventoried and then packed and then moved to an off-site storage facility for about a year and a half and then moved back into the new History Colorado Center. So we moved twice. Uh, 
we were in an in, we were homeless for about 18 months living in a little interim facility on 16th and Broadway and then we brought everything back home now and our collection storage is better than ever mm. we have more access uh we can make more available to researchers or history buffs who want to learn about Colorado's past. And the building, the new building is I haven't been inside it yet. I'm really excited to check it out, but it's it's a beautiful building. Oh, it's stellar. It's uh David Owen Triba design building. Uh he's a local Colorado architect who's done a lot of work on rehabilitation of of historic buildings. He worked on the tattered cover, among other things. Uh, and he really had this sense of combining, you know, the past and the present to create a building that we're gonna really love for a long, long time. Yeah, see I was uh like like a lot of media freeloaders, I went to one of uh, the press days uh, about a week and a half ago, or about, about a week ago. Yeah, I think I saw you at the snack bar. Oh, right? yes. I was definitely hitting uh, the booze in the snack bar, I have to say. <laughs> but, I mean, I was, really, I was really struck by the exhibits. This is clearly not your grandpa's dioramas. I mean, there's uh, – it's hardcore interactive from kind of going down into these mines. You can milk this kind of electronic cow – there's this kind of ski jump exhibit where you can literally kind of do one of the old uh, Steamboat Springs ski jumps. I mean, one thing I came away with in the whole thing was that Colorado, you know, oh, at the same time, it's also some pretty um, brave choices in terms of choosing some controversial aspects of Colorado's past. Yeah. So I came away with uh, the finding that Colorado is violent, racist, and loves <laughs> ski jumps. That's what I came away with. But I mean, it's in some working, ways, though. as as we talked about, I mean, so that this, should be the new state slogan. That yes, you vi- uh, visit Denver, racist, Colorado, violent, <laughs> racist, jumps. and love ski jumps. So it all works out. But I mean, as we were talking about, in some ways, this is this was a conscious choice by you guys. In some ways, to respond to, as you said, kind of the crisis that's been yeah. facing history museums. Yeah, this was so seven. true for us as well as state history museums all over the country are are in sort of this long, slow erosion of interest and attendance. You know, history. Uh, attendance at history museums peaked during the bicentennial, which is 30-plus years now. Uh, which can now be history exhibit itself. Right. It is its own <laughs> history exhibit now. And and we looked around and we saw history museums around the country in real trouble. Um, you know, did, did you guys ever read the Harry Potter books? Oh, yeah. Isn't it interesting that the history professor at Hogwarts is a ghost? He's just this dry <laughs> professor who died in the middle of a speech <laughs> and just kept going. I think that's how most people see history. We want to really overturn that idea. History is too important to uh, be boring. Uh, it's about love and death and sex and war and violence and ski jumps, it turns out. And uh, uh, we want to bring all of those things into our museum and make them interactive for our visitors. Uh, not just tell great stories, but make our put our visitors in the shoes of people in the past. So they face the choices, whether it's you know the, the hatred of, a, of an event like the Sand Creek Massacre or the joy of uh, jumping off Howelson Hill in Steamboat Springs. So I haven't been there yet. Can you describe to me one of these uh, interactive exhibits and, and oh, how you, you developed it? Yeah, so um, we have a bunch of different great ones, but the Howelson Hill, uh, the exhibit about Steamboat Springs is one of my favorites. Um, We really wanted to tell a story about skiing. It's so important to our economy. It's so important to our culture. When we did visitor testing on different ideas for the museum, we found out that people didn't want to go to a museum to learn about skiing. They don't want to see an exhibit of all these skis in a row. What they want to do is they want to go to the mountains, and they want to ski. And so we started thinking about what kind of an experience we could have that would would give you a, the feeling of skiing in a way that you wouldn't get from buying a lift ticket, but also tell a really important story about Colorado's past. And we landed on Steamboat Springs because uh, skiing began in Steamboat Springs in the 19-teens when a Norwegian ski champion named Carl Howelson 
moved to that community and built a rickety little jump on the side of a, a local hill and started teaching all the kids in town how to fly off of this thing. You know, terrified the parents. The idea that they were strapping on these 12, 13, 14 foot long skis and jumping off uh, into the blue. But kids and adults both really began to love it. And uh, Howelson was able to bring the sense of excellence and joy and really transform Steamboat Springs into one of our And so prior to that, there were no... Were there ski hills? Were oh, there resorts or yeah, anything like that? Yeah, so, so skiing was formerly a way to, to get from place to place. It was a way to commute from mining camp or postal carriers did it or, or clergymen or, or transients uh, would move around in the mountains in the wintertime. There were ski competitions and kind of an, an informal sense of ski. But we were all enthusiastic amateurs back then. We weren't really thinking about this as a, a commercial endeavor. But Howelson, you know, built jumps in Denver and Hot Sulphur Springs, and he founded winter carnivals. And he began to make skiing this more organized activity that was kind of the beginning of commercial skiing in Colorado. Uh, and it's a great thing. And we also know we had to uh, have that experience uh, that wasn't just the lecture of how Carl Howelson brought skiing to Steamboat Springs. So we built a ski jump, and it's the ski jump at Howelson Hill. We actually got some of the young jumpers there, 14-, 15-year-old kids, to jump their hearts out with cameras attached to their helmets and their chests and emulate this jump. So when you come in, you can actually get on skis and jump down Howelson Hill. You can do this as well. And then what's really fascinating is that they actually – they actually kept the cameras on the kids when they went off to the bars after, and you get to experience it kind of after you ski. Actually, no, that part. I just made that up. I, I lie sometimes on the podcast. Sorry. Um, yeah, so, so, was it, so as I was talking about, you know, beyond just these really fascinating interactive things, you guys also didn't shy away yeah. from some of the dirty, dark secrets. I mean, you have a whole really uh, – move, uh, several really kind of moving um, – uh, displays to some of Cardo's more controversial aspects. I wanted to talk a bit about some of those. Yeah, let's get to the violence part. All right. Yes, Jared, yeah. Jared always time. likes violence. Well, so we have uh, two new exhibits in the History Colorado Center with more on the way. One's called Destination Colorado. It's about a little farming town in eastern Colorado in the 1920s. Our uh, exhibit on the second floor is called Colorado Stories, and it highlights eight different Colorado communities at different times and places. And, uh, you know, Colorado is a really diverse state, uh, diverse geography, diverse economic activity, di diverse pers perspectives. But there are a lot of things which we share, a lot of characteristics that we share in common as Coloradans, a, a sense of persistence and skill and courage sometimes because it's not always easy to live here. But I think the most important one that we want to highlight is interdependence, that we have to depend on each other in order to succeed in this beautiful but sometimes challenging environment. We wanted to tell some of the stories where we where that dependence failed as as lessons or that we want to avoid in the future, and that includes talking about the Japanese internment camp at Amachi in southeastern Colorado during World War II. One hundred and twenty thousand Japanese and Japanese American men, women, and children were forcibly relocated from the West Coast into t one of ten internment camps in the Rocky Mountain West. Colorado hosted one of those, and the people who lived there had committed no crime. Uh, they were simply suspected of disloyalty because they were Japanese. And uh, so, you know, if you can imagine what it was like for a high school kid who was born in the United States, went to high schools in L.A. and then had to uh, come out and live in a military-style barracks with their family with no privacy, uh, barbed wire, armed guards around you at all times. You couldn't go anywhere without a pass, searchlights at night. You haven't, you haven't done anything, but this is how your country is treating you. It's a very challenging story and something we want people to know about. 
so we can avoid this kind of activity in the future. It's that story of the balance between security and liberty, and we've been talking about that since 9-11 in various ways. It's a really important story for us to keep in mind. We also talk about the Sand Creek Massacre, really our, our main story of community failure, what happens when people don't get along here and when they can't find ways to, to depend on each other. Um, it's a deeply tragic story about the massacre of 150 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, mostly women and children and the elderly, by, people, by, by Colorado soldiers who, again, felt threatened uh, and were also trying to clean out all of the Indian people on the plains so that settlement could take place. And this took place in 18, uh, 1864, 1864, right during the Civil War. And so how, how is that displayed then in the New History Center? Um, you know, it's such a challenging story that we really uh, kind of uh, cordoned off that section of the uh, exhibit. It's, a, it's its own enclosed space. And it's the most complex story, in many ways the most challenging story we're telling. So it's told in kind of a chronological fashion. Uh, through a theatrical display of projections of the words of different men and women who were involved in the massacre on different sides. Black Kettle, the the chief of the Cheyenne and Arapahoes at that site, uh, we have his words describing what happened before, during, and after the massacre. We have the voice of a of a military officer, Silas Soule, who was morally objected to the massacre and refused to order his men into the conflict. We have the voice of a 12-year-old Cheyenne girl named White Buffalo uh, woman who who told who survived the massacre and said afterwards that she she always slept with her moccasins on because she never knew when she was going to have to run in the middle of the night. You know, we have people uh, like John Shivington, who was the architect of the massacre, explaining his point of view, not because we agree with it, but because we want to understand how people can start thinking in a way where they think that you know the the murder of women and children is justifiable. I have a bone to pick with you guys about. Uh about the whole yeah, bring uh, it. Sand Creek Massacre. So so as part of being a media free lawyer at the event, uh-huh. I took that great, colorful uh, book you guys have. Yeah. Of the, you know, it's this great, it's like, what, like 50-page, really yeah. nice book of all the exhibits. And that night I was flipping through it with my four-year-old son. And, of course, the, like, two-page, beautifully kind of painted depiction of the massacre, my son is like, "Well, what's this, Daddy?" And I'm like, "No, let's let's go to the pages about the ski jump." Yeah, like, welcome no, to our world. No, I want to go back to this, but tell me what's going on here. And having to try to describe a massacre of civilians to a four-year-old yeah. in ways that are appropriate. Tell me about it. You caused yeah. you caused but, some nightmares there, Bill. Well, well, and, well. and and I uh, I know that I you know went to the history museum and even my daughter uh, with her school they take a lot of trips to the Colorado uh, History Museum even now do you find what do you find are the stories and the pieces of history that young people uh are most attracted to when you sort of see them you know that's interacting with that's a really great question and and we really deliberately worked on creating different layers of stories uh for different age levels that that you know for the 3 foot 6 level uh the the the, the farm and the barn in uh, the Destination Colorado exhibit where kids can actually go and collect eggs or milk the cow in the barn. Uh, or I enjoyed to... milking the cow. It's really great. I have to say. I spent some, I spent some time milking the cow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to you know editorialize about what, what that means exactly, but, but it is a satisfying experience <laughs> yeah, in some we can, way. I'll keep that to myself. Was there beer right? coming out of it? <laughs> no, just as light. I know, I know how sure. focused you are on freeloading at these events. So. I have. I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that kind of – that lower level, that kinesthetic level of, of, you know, this idea that eggs in a – you can collect eggs from the barn and take them to the store and uh, 
you know, exchange those for goods in the store. That's 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 a basic level for you know a small crowd. They get that at that level, and and then we also have the story of the Homestead Act, and and you know the the beginning of kind of this economic recession where farmers were really going to struggle through the twenties and thirties. That's for you know the the six foot one level in a lot of ways. We try and layer that, and that's why we deliberately sort of close off the Sand Creek story. That said, we have a Ku Klux Klan robe right out in the open. Yes. Um, that's another difficult story to explain to a five-year-old I know. Um, yeah, who were these guys and what was this all about? But that's sort of our entry to telling a story of this wonderful story about Lincoln Hills, an African-American resort community that was built as kind of an escape from violence and prejudice and discrimination in the 20s and 30s. So I'm... Uh- Lots of folks have been celebrating uh, the approach that you guys have taken. Now, there's also been a few folks who haven't been as excited. I'm referring to an article that Michael Paglia wrote in Westward. I know I wasn't supposed to say Westward at all this week because I'm not allowed to as a former Westward writer. You already said it. I know. You you can't Uh, help yourself. As Julian beeped out me saying Westward, (laughs) as we're supposed to do, go boop, boop, every time I say Westward. Anyways, uh, Michael Paglia wrote about... Uh, the new history. Uh, and so, what was his gripe? What was his beef? Um, he loves the architecture, but he was just complaining about how what, the exhibits are all were all um, based on kind of consumer surveys, and it was this kind of I think as he put it like kind of a lowbrow, high entertainment approach to museums and whatnot, and he just he really didn't like it. And I mean, I think Jared and I have thoughts on what Michael Polly has to say. But I was wondering if there's anything that you Felt comfortable saying. Well, I mean, sure. a move—a move to make museums more interactive. Some traditionalists or other people might look at it and say, "Well, this is just this is just an amusement park. This is a Disneyfication of history, um, and watering it down in some ways." What yeah. do you think about that? Hey, uh, Mr. Polly is entitled to his opinion. We have no problem with that, and we know that not everyone's going to love uh, what we've done. But for us, uh, you know, we came out of the model of of having sort of the. The holy of holies, the, the the sacred object on a pedestal with a spotlight, and nobody came, and that's not sustainable. We we just can't build reverential exhibits that are, you know, so inaccessible to people that uh, that nobody wants to bother with us. That that's not a way to move into the future. We have to create experiences that are memorable, and so that people will want to come back again and again to bring their friends and their family. Um, and that means that we do we we did broaden out the interpretation in some ways, and we create some experiences which I know for a purist are not going to be the best experiences. And we have for them time put away our dusty old dioramas, but they're coming back. Okay. Uh, we, this is just the first of three phases of opening, and so we're going to have different kinds of experience over time. But but if we really want to be a museum for the future that is around for a hundred years for our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. We have to find ways that people will come and then come again and come again. So, yeah, we listened a little bit to what our visitors wanted to, to know about and what their their level of knowledge was and what misinformation that they brought with them to the museum that we knew we were going to have to address. It makes for better and more accessible exhibits and I think more memorable exhibits in the mm-hmm. long run. Can I ask a question about Denver history? Uh there are, you know, Denver has a very colorful history. You, yeah. you had mentioned earlier the, the, um, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in Denver, and there's right. a lot of photos that you can see of, you know, the white hooded uh, Ku Klux Klan members marching down uh, the middle of Denver and having these huge rallies. Are there any? Is there? Are there pieces of Denver history, and whether or not they're displayed in the new history center or not, that you like 
to tell or you like to bring up that people just don't know anything about about that blows their minds every time oh well uh geez there's so many i don't know where to begin you know in more of a colorado sense i know you we were talking uh, at, at the media event about uh, the crypto Jews of Southern Colorado. Oh, I love the crypto Jews. That is Don't a get me started. great, great story that I want to find a way to tell in in some of our future exhibits. It's this idea that uh, as Hisp- you know, Hispanos began settling in Colorado generations before there was a Colorado, and uh, uh, they included people among them who brought traditions that weren't straight out of the Roman Catholic catechism. Uh, there. There are cemeteries with gravestones with stars of David, or you'll go to little adobe houses and they'll have little prayer scrolls attached to the door, little mezuzahs, um, and these rituals, uh, not eating pork. Uh, and and the Hispanos who practice these, you know, they do this and they don't really have a reason why. It's just what their, their family has always done, uh, or menorahs. Uh, and looking back, what you find out is that uh, when Spain began to move into the New World in the 14 and 1500s, a lot of uh, Jewish people left Spain to escape the Spanish Inquisition, and they ended up in Central America and then slowly kind of kept a, a step ahead of the Inquisition by moving north into what's now the United States, into New Mexico, and ultimately into southern Colorado. Um, so there are these Jewish traditions in a very Hispanic Catholic society that, that you know, date back four or 500 years. It's, it's really a wonderful story and one that I don't think a lot of people know about. Yeah, to me, it's, it's one of the most fascinating stories that I found in Colorado, and, you know, in part because as we're talking about, it really ties into what's going on today in its real personal level. I mean, I know people, I've talked with, with people, uh, mm-hmm. basically college students who've taken courses on this and have come to believe, looking into their own family histories, that, that, that they have this crypto Jew history, and it's really divisive within their own family. I mean, you know, you... You have these strong kind of Catholic Hispano families, and all of a sudden the younger generation is saying, well, wait a second. The name Crypto Jew, that sounds like something out of a Dan Brown novel. Is it, yes. Do they call yeah. themselves crypto? they identify as Crypto Jews, or is this sort of a a label that has been placed on I, them? I think it's a label, but it's the idea that the, the, uh, the Sephardic Jews who fled Spain were practicing Judaism in secret because they mm-hmm. didn't want to be found out by the Inquisition. So they didn't advertise the fact that they were Jewish, but they still practiced cultural traditions. Um, and over time, over generations, sort of the the knowledge of, of where those traditions came from was lost. And so, you know, after dozens and dozens of generations, you have people who are, you know, uh, involved in these practices, but don't really know why. It's just because it's the way their grandparents did it. Uh, so I think that's sort of a label that was imposed from the outside. Yeah. Crypto Jews. Any other... Colorado stories that you guys that you haven't been able to get into the museum or King for because you know that are just that are just too controversial or, or maybe too... any memorabilia or any historical artifacts that you mentioned are sitting on that were sitting on dusty shelves or in a in a box somewhere but there's no you love it but you can't the Ark of the Covenant for example <laughs> yes, clearly still in the well, I'm not allowed to talk about that um, <laughs> well you know we have we have 250,000 objects and at any given time no museum has more than about five percent of their collection out so they're always great things. Uh, that we want to show and we're hoping to get a chance to show in the future. One of my favorite things in our collection are these uh, uh, silver railroad passes that uh, Otto Mears was a uh, Colorado businessman. He developed a lot of the roads in the Western Slope and then a lot of the railroad systems. And when he had VIPs riding on his railroad lines, he would issue them these silver railroad tickets. I mean, it's like Willy Wonka, you know. Uh, we we don't p- print our tickets in paper. We print them in silver in Colorado, and they're just wonderful little VIP passes. 
that you know are no bigger than a credit card really, but they 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 really speak to the kind of the glittery promise of a place like Colorado. Any Elvis memorabilia? I know um, that uh, Elvis had taken a liking to Denver, <laughs> and was it the the chief of police at the time? They had this very special relationship every time Elvis would come into uh, Denver and do concerts. Any anything that Elvis bequeathed the city? I'm not aware of anything like yeah. that. I know he, he did have a good relationship with the police in Denver, but uh, there's nothing in uh, nothing Elvis related in our collection that I'm aware of. Okay, uh-huh. not yet. Unfortunately. So now I want to go into the future. Yeah, now I want to go into the future. I was hoping Julian would have some sound effect about us going into the future, um, but he doesn't. <laughs> so we're going to hold off on the fun sound effects. Um, but yeah, so let's say we're 200 years in the future, and the new, new uh, History Color Center has just opened. Michael Polya is still mad at it, still doesn't like it. Uh, what exhibits about um, contemporary Denver and Colorado, Colorado 2012, do you think would who would make it into the new new? Hey, you know, it, it's never a good idea to ask a historian to predict the future because we are almost always wrong. See, we're but, always right but, here on the but, diatribe. We yeah, always right. predict correctly. But but that's okay because that never stops us from predicting the future anyway. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think there will be something about the Ken, Ken Salazar presidential administration in there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but really what I think most of our history will be dedicated to is how Colorado became District 1 of the Hunger Games, right? Because yes. the capital cities in the Rocky Mountains. It's we true. We are the future home of the capital of of. Hunger Games Society, and I think most of our museum will be dedicated. But I to thought that. Boulder was the was a location of where all the good people went in the stand. Well, yeah, that's true. true. How true. does this happen? It, How do you combine these two? I don't know. I think uh, I think that's what we're going to have to reconcile at the new New History Colorado Center in two hundred years. Do you have any thoughts, Jared, about what'll be in the new New? History oh, Colorado uh, Tim Tebow's helmet. Tim Tebow's helmet. <laughs> yeah, his jersey. When, <laughs> you know, after, after, right, in his holy after halo. He, he parted the Red Sea. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, when when you know when Tebowism has overtaken Christianity right. as and, you know he's the second yeah. coming of Jesus Christ and everyone will be coming back to the first place in which he um, led a led a football team and the rise of Tebowism. And then they're going to run the Hunger Games, you know, to recognize Tim Tebow. Yes. As, yes. Exactly. Yes. That's okay. what it's all about. See, I see. I was going to say stuff from uh, Casa Bonita. I was especially going to oh, recommend that. Oh, you don't that. have to wait 200 years. When we open our Denver exhibit in the fall, we have a big piece oh, on do Casa you? Bonita. Because, yeah. yeah, I was going to suggest that you could just take some of the food that they're putting out now and put it out there oh, in a sure. podium. It'll be just It'll the still same. be there. It's the same. Yeah, exactly. That's perfectly preserved. Yeah, yeah. that's a good no, thing. We love that place. And when we open uh, our Denver exhibit in fall of this year, uh, Denver A to Z, it's about 26 things that we just think are awesome about Denver. And it includes Red Rocks and uh, the Brown Palace Hotel and the fact that we, uh, you know, put uh, champion steers in the lobby of the Brown Palace during the stock show, but it's about Casa Bonita. It's about, uh, uh, well, it's about Cheeseman Park and the fact that it's built on our original city cemetery. And uh, we just think there's some amazing things about Denver that we want to share. And- Maybe we should throw that out to our listeners out there, all five of them, if you, uh, or 500 of them, yes. actually, if you want to uh, let us know what you think will, should be in the yeah. uh, history of Colorado and Denver, those things that should be in the Museum of the Future. We'd love to hear it. Let us know. Cool. Uh, well, I want to move on to um, our love and hate for the week. Um, I want to start with Bill. As you're supposed to guess, do you have anything about Denver, either today, the past, or in the future that you want to love or hate on? Oh, well, you know, I'm loving the response of all the people coming down to uh, the History Colorado Center, and, and we hope it keeps up. Uh, we think that this is really a special experience, and uh, we want everyone to come down and see it. 
Very good. That was nice. Uh, Jared, love or hate? Uh, I have a quick love and a quick hate. A quick love, the fact that the uh, the civil unions bill, which has been meandering its way through uh, the legislature, actually passed a pretty key House committee yesterday, uh, despite uh, thoughts that it would die again in the, in the House. It actually passed that committee, so has to make it through another committee, apparently, but um, it is looking at least a little bit more likely that Colorado could pass a a bill to allow same-sex couples to enter into civil unions. My hate is the fact that the 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 famous falling bear, the bear that in Williams Village in Boulder was photographed getting um falling out of the tree after it was tranquilized. I'm Facebook friends now with Falling Bear. The falling the Bear was just such a magical uh epic photograph and birthed so many great uh photoshopped uh like uh internet memes and things like that but uh it got hit by a car and died yeah the falling bear yesterday did. which i mean wouldn't wouldn't on um, us 36 wouldn't the animal officers who kind of tranked it out of a tree let it fall out of a tree bounce into one of those like cartoon firemen uh like nets wouldn't they know they shouldn't just let this bear just well, start I guess wandering let, off into well, the wild well, they they let they released it somewhere <laughs> up in the mountains but i guess it somehow made its way back down and was crossing the it was looking for more of that good stuff is it giving me and more how did they know it was the same bear right away and i mean news travel it was still fast. on that pose it was still on that spread eagle pose when they found it. <laughs> with the chalk drawing maybe on the ground so but i'm sad the falling bear yeah oh well uh julian do you have any love or hate this week Yes, love to the Cinco de Mayo event tomorrow. Oh, yeah. At Civic Center. And we'll be there. Are you going to be setting up tables slowly? Yes. Okay, <laughs> you're good. good. I have a love as well. Uh, I was talking all about museum exhibits. I want to give a love to one other museum exhibit that I saw recently. Uh, the uh, I'm going to say it incorrectly. The Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent yeah. exhibit at the Art Museum. It's outstanding. Yes, I have to say... Um, like famous French fashion designer. Yes, um, I was blown away. I have to say, it was one of the, like the top exhibits I've seen in a long, long time. Beyond the New yeah, it's over at the Denver Art Museum. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, and all the dudes guys. who are saying, "Oh, I'm not going to go see some fashion designer thing," we have to go shove it because it's fan. What makes it so fantastic? It's just like so well done. I don't yeah. even build. It's, you... it's just beautifully presented. Uh, there's a lot to see and a lot to do. It's great for kids. They have all these kind yes. of fashion design interactives. Uh, uh, those guys are always so good. They they make us sick. We love them. And they use the space. They use some of those like really kind of strange shaped rooms so well. Yeah, I have to yeah. say, please, everyone should go. And check this it out. and this is an exhibit that it first had gone in in Paris yeah. or in, in some French city, but in Den- New York. But yeah, then, Denver's but then no the other only no, no, it wasn't even New York. Got, it wasn't New that's York. Right, that's right. Denver's the only U.S. city, and it's because um, a director because we're Paris on the plat. Exactly, well. we are. Paris on the plat. Oh, oh. There you go. Um, okay. Well, that, well, that's all the love and hate we have for this week. Um, if you have something to say about today's topics or would like to share a little of your own love or hate, please leave us a brief message at 720-282-YELL. That's 720-282-9355. We need, some, we need some good calls. We've sort of laid low on, on yeah. getting people to call in and leave their loves and hates. So true. We need, we need some, some good love ones. Call hates. in. We like that. I want to give a big thank you to State Historian Bill Convery for being here. Please, everyone, go check out the New History uh, Colorado Center, 1200 Broadway in Denver. It's open every day. Come milk some make-believe cows. Uh, our theme music is by the band Houses. Our web hosting provided by bluechannel.com. You can watch us live on Friday mornings at 9 a.m. on nfnradio.com. You can listen to episodes on demand by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, 
Stitcher Starts, Smart Radio, Google Listen, etc., etc., etc. For more information, check out our website, denverdiatribe.com, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Joel Warner, half of my co-host, uh, Jared, our production engineer, uh, Julian Mondragon, and our guest, Bill Convery. Thanks for listening.